This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hey, bro. Happy New Year, everybody. Hey, Happy New Year. And a belated happy birthday to you, by the way. Thank you. December 26th. Oh, you remembered. I did. What'd you get me? Oh, uh, you'll find out later after I've gone to the store. You don't actually have to get anything. It's okay. In this week's episode, we're going to help you start the year on the right financial foot with 10 things you can do in less than five minutes to have more money in 2020 and beyond. We're also going to see what tools fools use to manage their own money, budget, and track their investing performance. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Well, bro, since this is our first episode of the year, we probably have some new listeners who are inspired to get their financial house in order. So, I decided to ask around Motley Fool HQ to find out what are some of the best tools and resources that our fellow fools use to budget, prioritize, and track their spending and investing performance. And it turns out, there are a lot of money-savvy people here who work at The Fool, but are not on our investing or planning teams. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. A lot of them actually work in tech. So, my first stop took me to Ann Baines. She's a project manager over on the tech team. For those of you looking for a path to manage your money better, she recommends a great flowchart that you can find on the Financial Independence subreddit. My name is Ann Baines, and I'm a project manager here at The Motley Fool, and I want to talk about uh, the Financial Independence subreddit flowchart 4.1. Financial Independence is a subreddit. The flowchart was originally created earlier this year by user Happy Asian Panda, and with collaboration from the Financial Independence subreddit community, they're on version 4.1 that just got released, I think, last week, and it's a... it's a, it's a great starting place for if you if you don't know what to do with your money, you just follow the steps. And for those who don't know what, what Reddit is, mm-hmm. what is Reddit? Reddit is a, uh, a website, a very big website, that is split into pieces called subreddits, uh, much like uh, different threads on a forum. So one of them is called Financial Independence, and it's a bunch of people who really want to uh, take a hold of their money and their future and, and work it. Okay, so one of the first steps to get a handle on your money, of course, is to look at your spending and start budgeting. Sounds boring, doesn't it, bro? To some people. I mean, I know it sounds really fun to you. <laughs> Actually, I find it pretty boring, too. Do you really? But just, yeah. I don't do it as much as I used to. Uh, if for, yeah, Whatever. It's not exciting to me. I just know it's important. Right. There we go. There so, we go. eat your greens. There well, you go. Mike Shade suggests you need a budget. I'm Mike Shade. I'm a DevOps engineer at The Motley Fool. Okay, and you're here to recommend you need a budget. Yes. What is you need a budget? It is an envelope budgeting system at its core, which means that you give every dollar that you earn a roll, you stick it in an envelope, and you say this is what the purpose of that money is for, for goals, normal expenses, savings, that sort of thing. It really gives you insight into how every dollar that you spend is used. Anything that tracks your expenses automatically kind of will stick it into whatever bucket it thinks it is. And then you look at it and say, oh, look, I spent this much, this much. YNAB is much more of a proactive tool where you say, okay, I have this money coming in and I am intending to spend it on this, this much on food, this much on my vehicle. And so it's much more proactive than reactive. And it it really kind of transfers the power from looking back at what you spent to looking forward at what you want to spend. They just generally have have four rules, and it's give every dollar a job. So when the money comes in, you decide right then and there what it's for. Um, Embrace your true expenses, which means you're not hiding that Starbucks 
that daily Starbucks in just like your miscellaneous category that you never think about. Um, roll with the punches because sometimes you have an emergency that comes up that you're going to spend money on. And it makes it really easy to move money from one envelope to another to, to kind of deal with daily life because things happen. Um, and then number four, age your money. As you're doing all of this, the age of the dollars that you keep in your account grow older and older because the goal is obviously to be spending less than you're taking in. I'll, I'll say also there's two ways of using YNAB. You can have it automatically sync your accounts or you can put your purchases in manually. And I found that doing it manually really was the best way to get benefit from it because it, you know, otherwise you're swiping your card left and right, you're buying things without thinking about it. And it's, it's just a little bit of a barrier to barrier to spending money um, to know that you're going to have to record it later. So what about an easy solution for putting that budget to work? Kim Cattrall uses Simple Bank to automate allocating her money into buckets. Simple Bank allows for you to really fine-tune your budgeting. You can split up your checking account into different buckets. Some buckets can be for individual reoccurring expenses, while others for financial goals that you'd like to achieve, and others for high-interest savings accounts. The current interest rate is 1.9% on savings account balances of over 10K and 1.7% for those under 10K. I have it set to where my money goes exactly where I want it to go. Each of my monthly expenses gets rebudgeted funds after each payday. I choose to pay my debts and allocate funds to my goals manually. What's remaining goes into what I think of as my two-week allowance. This bi-weekly check-in with my finances helps me hit all of my financial goals. Oh, you're on the right track. But how do you keep an eye on all those accounts and your investing success? Well, some people like to use Mint. Other people like to use personal capital. Let's ask Doug Rayall, who is a product manager for The Blueprint. It's our new business advice website. He has some thoughts on how to find out which is right for you. Hi, I'm Doug Rayall. I'm a product manager for The Blueprint, The Motley Fool's new business advice website. I'd like to talk about two personal finance tools that I use, Mint and Personal Capital. They have different strengths. Uh, Mint is great for when you're first starting out and need to get control of your cash flows and understand your expenses at a very granular level. You connect all your bank accounts to it, your, your credit card, your loans, and then you can track your spending across categories like groceries, restaurant, gas, utilities, entertainment. What's really great about Mint when you're first starting to take control of your finances is you can make a budget and track your spending during the month to get control over where your money goes. The customizations around budgeting are really strong. You can make your own spending categories and then group things into them um, based on rules that you can create. So for example, I have all my streaming subscriptions going into one budget category. So Netflix, Spotify, Hulu, and now Disney Plus, I can see all together to see that I'm spending too much on streaming. Uh, If you've already got a budget, if you already know where your expenses go, where every cent is, maybe you already have your own spreadsheets where you track your spending, then personal capital is a good option for overall investment tracking. Personal capital doesn't do budgeting well, but what it does is insights into your investment accounts. So you connect your brokerage accounts, your retirement accounts, and you're able to see uh, performance across all your accounts, um, how your holdings uh, represent different asset classes, things that would be very difficult to log into each of your individual accounts to do. So what I use this for is to get an overall picture of my asset allocation 
and the performance of my holdings across different accounts because I have a 401k, I have IRAs, I manage uh, my wife's accounts, and it's just a great place to see everything together. If you're interested in beating the market and that's one of your goals, personal capital is also great for tracking your performance against the broader market. You can compare your performance against the S&P 500, against the Dow. So there you have it, a flowchart to help those just starting out navigate their path to financial independence. You can find it over on the Financial Independence subreddit. Or you can also use You Need a Budget to get a handle on your spending. And then try Simple Bank to automate and allocate toward your goals. And Personal Capital and Mint to help you stay on track and monitor your inevitable success. And that, bro, is what's up. Most people are familiar with the field of behavioral finance, that field of science where finance, economics, and psychology get together and point out how we humans actually are pretty imperfect when it comes to money. So, if you've read anything about behavioral finance, you've come across some common mistakes and biases. The one you probably most, ones you most commonly see are things like loss aversion, where we react more emotionally to losses than to gains, recency bias, where we um, place greater emphasis on what's happened just recently in the last year or two, confirmation bias, where we just seek out information that confirms what we already believe, stuff like that, overconfidence, bandwagon effect. But to me, there's one thing that is largely ignored by the behavioral finance literature. It's the one that I'm willing to bet that costs people hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of dollars. And I know because, frankly, I'm guilty of it too. And that is procrastination. Well, we're all guilty of it. So, in fact, there was a study by Jeffrey Brown and Alessandro Privatero that found evidence that procrastinators will likely have less safe for retirement. So, what they basically did to find out who the procrastinators were, they found they identified the people in various companies, I guess, that signed up for their healthcare plan on the very last day. It turns out that those people are also less likely to participate in the retirement plan. They take longer to sign up if and when they do, and they contribute less. Um, but you probably don't need an academic study to prove that there's things that people put off because we probably all have things that we know that we should do, and we just haven't gotten around to it. Oh, it's br- well. I mean, like today, for example, I'm like, I'm going to go and increase my contribution to my 401k. Yeah. I am a good person. This is what good people do. Here we go. And then immediately, the website's like, that's not your password. <laughs> That's not your login name. That's and so immediately I'm like hurdle, 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 and I and then I abandon it. I yeah. still haven't, and I was like, fine, I'll do it this weekend because there's just ugh, ugh. I'm so guilty of this too. Yes, uh, so I think that the hurdle part is a big part of it, and we're going to talk about some of the hurdles here in the show. Um, and I I do think there are a lot of reasons why people procrastinate, but I do think for a lot of things. They th- overestimate how long it'll take to get something done. For a lot of the things, like the things that will have really big impact on our finances, it doesn't take that long to do. Um, maybe f- as little as five minutes, for example, uh, or maybe 10 or maybe 15, but certainly not much longer than that. Um, so we're going to talk about some of those to help determine the topics that I chose. I read several articles about either most common financial resolutions or most common financial regrets. So um, we're going to cover the most, the biggest things that either a you probably want to do this year, or things that your future self wish you would have done at some point in your life. 
Are we ready? I'm ready. This is a big promise. Lots of things in, that I can do in less than five minutes. In less than five minutes or so. Anyway. <laughs> well, that also with the BB&T thing, and then I had to put answer all these security questions, and then I, ugh. I mean that uh, that the clock is ticking, people. Okay. So let's assume that all of that is fine. So we'll go with number one, which is coincidentally safe for retirement. So when you look at surveys of people who basically express their biggest regrets, by far the number one in most surveys is I wished I had saved more. If you already belong to a plan, and if you know your password and everything, <laughs> it does not take long to do this. So I did increase my contribution to the 401k for 2020 because the limits did go up. I timed it. It took less than two minutes. Ooh. So it does not take long. If you already have an IRA, you could always sign up to have money just taken from your bank account to the IRA. That does not take very long at all. When you talked about the hurdles, I think some of the big hurdles are, number one, like how people think, well, how much should I contribute? So, a few guidelines. Number one, you should definitely take advantage of the full match. According to Vanguard, about a third of people don't. So, you should at least be contributing enough to do that. We've talked before about guidelines about how you should be saving about 15% of your income over your um, career to be able to retire at some point in your mid to late 60s. So, if you are not saving 15%, that's another good guideline. I talk about the limits that went up. So, in 2020 for 401ks, limits are 19500 with another 6500 if you'll be 50 or older by December 31st. For IRAs, the limit is 6000 with another 1000 if you're 50 or older. Um, the other thing that I think is a, a speed bump for people, and I've, I've had three or four conversations with fools about this just in the last month, should I do the Roth or the traditional? Um, if you're in a lower tax bracket today, go with the Roth. It's almost a no-brainer. If you're in the middle to higher tax bracket, traditional might make more sense, but you can do what I'm doing is doing a little bit in both. Nowadays, I'm doing about 80% traditional, 20 in Roth. And then the other speed bump is people just like, well, will I have enough money to cover my bills if I'm having less take-home pay because money's going to the 401k? And I would say, just start saving. After a couple of, couple of paychecks, you'll figure out whether you're doing okay or not. You can always go back to the previous amount that you were contributing. But I would say, just try it and see what happens. Number two, related to this, and that is, cut back on spending. So, a lot of people will talk about, well, I can't save more for retirement because I'm spending too much. One of the first things you can do to determine about where you can cut back your spending is see where your money is going. And this is a great time of year to do that because most credit card companies, most banks provide an end-of-year summary. I just looked at mine for my American Express card. It was very easy to look up. I could see where the cat, it breaks it down by category. You can download it into an Excel file if you want to get real fancy with it. Any surprises? Uh, no, not really. Yeah. I mean, I have a pretty good idea of where these things are going. But anyway, so it's a good time of year to figure out where you're spending those. And some of our fellow fools provided other suggestions. Mint, personal capital, you need a budget, will all also help you determine where your money is going. We've talked before about the budgeting guideline. 50% of your money should go to must-pay expenses, 30% to discretionary, 20% to savings, which I think is also a great guideline. Number three, find a better credit card. So, what happens if you uh, unfortunately have not been able to rein in your spending? You're probably relying on a credit card. So, it certainly makes sense to get a better credit card there. But even if you're just using it and you're managing to pay off every month, it's still a good idea to get a better credit card. Very easy these days to go to any site, such as the Motley Fool's Ascent site, but there are other sites as well. And they rank all the credit cards for basically what you're looking for. 
travel, transfer, whatever you want to do. You can have money deposited in a, in a 529 account. There are all kinds of benefits. But what we've done recently is basically go the other way and say, where are we spending most of our money? Which store gets most of our money? And do they offer a card that offers like 5% back? We did it, and let me tell you, it takes less than five minutes to sign up for a new credit card because they make it very easy to do that. Yeah, and we were really happy with, as we talked on this show previously, when we finally got like a travel rewards credit card. Like, I was kind of amazed at how many flights we've gotten for free and how many rental cars. I mean, essentially free, quote unquote, from using our points. It's been really, it's been surprisingly really great. Yeah. Uh, the one interesting thing about when you have multiple cards, like my wife and I do have, you'll have each one has their own set of rules. Like mm-hmm. it might be, well, five percent back if you go here, two percent if you go here, one percent on this, and also different benefits. Like if you use certain cards, you might get travel insurance mm-hmm. or something. Like that. It was difficult for us to keep it all straight, so uh, my wife is currently working on basically a guideline that we could put in our wallet. Yeah. So whenever we go somewhere, like we go to this gas station or this grocery store, we can look at them like, okay, at this place, this is the card to use. I'll bet someone should invent a really nice-looking wallet that already has like a little sleeve where it says, "This one's for gas, this one's for groceries, this one's for travel." I think that's a great idea. Patented Christmas, right now. Christmas present idea. There you go. Late nice. Christmas, belated Christmas belated, present idea. Belated birthday present idea. I don't need it. Okay. <laughs> we only have two credit cards. So. <laughs> Number four: Build a bigger emergency fund and/or earn a little more on your cash. And this often shows up in either resolutions or surveys about regrets. People wish they had more cash, because if you don't have that cash on hand, that's what sends you into debt. Um, so, uh, one question is, how, how big should your emergency fund be? We've talked about this before, three to six months must pay ex- expenses. Um, bank rate did a survey that found 30% of people, either themselves or their immediate family, did experience some sort of unexpected big-ticket expense. Average cost thirty seven fifty, with more than a third saying it costs five thousand or more. So I actually think that's a pretty good guideline for how much to have in an emergency fund. Again, very easy to find a higher yielding savings account. You don't have to earn nothing on your cash these days. The Motley Fool's website, The Ascent, has a whole ranking of where you can get high yielding savings account, as do other places. Once you go there, you see which one you like. You click, get an account. It takes. Definitely less than five minutes to open that type of account, and then just have two, three, four hundred dollars automatically sent to that account every month, and you'll build that up pretty quickly. Number five, make an extra payment to your mortgage. One of the biggest resolutions for people is to get out of debt. It often means credit card debt, school loans, but also the mortgage. Making that extra payment can have a pretty big effect on your overall wealth. So I'm going to give you an example here. So according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, the average size of a new mortgage is $350,000. According to Freddie Mac, the 30-year mortgage now, the rate on that is 3.7%. So if you put those two together, if you get a new mortgage today, after you pay it back in 2050, 30 years, your total cost of that $350,000 mortgage will be $580,000. But what if you sent in an additional $250 a month? Well, first of all, you're going to cut seven years off your mortgage, so you're going to pay it off in 2043. But the total cost of that mortgage is going to drop from 580,000 to 524,000. Basically, you saved $56,000 by sending in that extra $250 a month. Again, very easy to go into your bank account; just have it sent directly to the mortgage company. You probably want to include your mortgage account number on there. Make it clear that it is going to principal, and principal only, not principal and interest. But it's very easy to do. 
and my wife and I have been doing this for three or four years now. Number six, open a 529 savings account. Um, among parents, one of their biggest goals is to save more for college. Among people who went to college, one of their biggest regrets is the amount of money they had to borrow to go to college. So opening up a 529 savings account before the kid goes to college is one way to cut back on that debt. Very easy way to do this. Go to savingforcollege.com. In the upper left, you'll see 529 plans. You click on that, and then you'll see your state. It's, called, it's literally your state's plan. You click on that, and you get a map. Click on your state, and you'll get a rating for your state's plan. And it's done instead of by stars, it's by, by caps, like graduation caps. Cute. Yes, very cute. If your state's plan is four caps or higher, you're probably, that's a probably good choice to do, especially if um, you pay state income taxes and you get a deduction on contributions to the state's plan. And right on the website, there's a button that says Enroll Now. They make it very easy to sign up for a 529 savings plan. On average, people are contributing between two dollars and $400 a month. Just to give you some numbers, if you are doing this right when your kid is born, you save $300 a month for 18 years, you earn 6% a year, you'll get about $115,000. Now, at today's prices, that's going to be almost plenty, for especially an in-state school. 18 years from now, it probably won't be so much. But I don't think you have to feel pressured to save for the entire cost. Because over the course of the next 18 or so years, depending on how old your kids are, other things will happen. Hopefully, you'll get raises, so you'll be able to pay for some of it out of cash flow. Um, They might get scholarships. You might inherit money along the way. Um, uh, And of course, there are school loans. It's possible to do that. But the more you have saved now, the less you have to borrow in the future. Okay. Now, for the last three, I have to admit that these will take much longer than five minutes. Oh! But the first step will only take five minutes. Oh, I don't know if we're going to allow it. You know what? Let's just hear what you have to say. Because it'll be worth well more than... I don't don't know. You'll still be happy if you do these things. How's that? Because these are so important. And they're worth it. Yes. Okay. All All right. right. So, So, here's here's your extra credit, listeners. Okay. So, we've moved on to item number seven. If you are among the majority of Americans who have no estate plan, no will, no trust, or anything like that, take the first step. And that first step is finding a qualified attorney. So there are a couple of ways to do that. Number one, I just contact friends, family, or professionals that you know that you respect and see who they work with. Might even be someone at work if your if your office has in-house legal counsel, they might know somebody. So just take that five minutes to send out some sort of email to people saying, who do you know, who have you used, who do you recommend, and then make that appointment. We generally don't recommend that you go and use these online wills and stuff like that. For some people, it can be good, especially if your life's not very complicated, or it's just the the bare minimum you can do right now. It's better than nothing. But we do uh, recommend that you see an attorney. And it will take time, and it will take money, but it will be well worth it. Number eight, get sufficient life insurance. So I was looking for what's generally considered a well-rated website, because I've gotten all my life insurance online. Um, and the ones that came up pretty frequently are policygenius.com and quotacy.com, Q-U-A-T-A-C-Y.com. I personally haven't used them, but other articles that I've read recommended them. Um, some companies that if you go directly to them are highly recommended is TIAA-CREF and USAA, but you have to be related to the military for USAA. Um, and your employer might offer life insurance, and you can get supplemental life insurance. But just going on to any of these sites or contacting any of these people will only take a few minutes to enter your information and get that sent off. What will then happen is you'll probably have to do some sort of a medical exam and some sort of follow-up, but it really is not that difficult. 
as a good rule of thumb, just get term life insurance 10 times your income for as long as you need it, and that's generally until your kids are out of the house. And this is obviously, I think we all know that this is important. It's a low probability event, especially if you're younger. But I know of several people who uh, have who are parents. They died in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. They did not have life insurance, and boy, it put it put the rest of their family in a bind. Do you need life insurance if you don't have kids? Generally speaking, I would say no. It, the, really, the the rule of thumb is: Does anyone rely on your income? And if you were gone, would everyone that's important to you be okay financially? The answer is yes. Most people would be fine. No one's relying on my income. Then you don't need life insurance. Number nine. Ask for a raise. The unemployment rate—it's just rate, that easy. It's just that easy. <laughs> the unemployment rate is still very, very low. Um, employees are in generally good bargaining position these days. Now it is the beginning of the year, so maybe you received an end of the year raise recently, and you, you're in no position to be asking for another one. But if you have not, I actually contacted some of our HR and recruiting fools to give advice on this and where to go, so you can get compensation information based on your profession at Glassdoor and Payscale. I've gone to the Department of Labor's uh, wage data by area and occupation. That's pretty useful. Um, They also recommended that if your profession has some sort of professional association, they will often provide an annual compensation report. You can see um, not only how much our people are making, but which certifications are being higher valued these days, that type of thing. Um, And our uh, HR fools emphasize that it's always good to just sit down with your manager and talk about it. Find out why you're getting paid you are, because you it's not just your salary, it's the overall benefits package, um, and what you can do to earn a greater salary if that's one of your goals. So even just taking the, the five minutes to look at something like payscale.com, see how much people are making in your area and your profession, and then sending an email to your manager and scheduling that um, meeting could be a great first start. One thing that's fascinating about the labor market and how it is so competitive right now to hire people um, is that we're having. I know here at the Fool, we're having to offer people more money, more, more, and more often to be like, oh, well, what if we now offer you that? Like, um, so if you are thinking of making the leap, like it's also you also are in a position to ask for more money. Um, and so I wonder how that'll influence us who have been working here at the Fool for a while, like because the newer people who are getting hired might be getting hired at a higher rate, at a higher. Um, well, it's interesting you say that because I did read an article about a month ago, basically saying, if you really want to bump up your income, you probably have to change jobs because mm-hmm. because employers are really looking for people. You have more negotiating power rather than if you're already in a job. To be given a, like a twenty percent raise is unlikely. That's insane. Yeah. But if you go out into the marketplace and and find a place that is willing to pay you twenty percent more, it's more likely. Yeah, and yeah, absolutely. All right, bring us home, bro. All right, something we've talked about before, get a checkup from a fee-only financial planner. So I think everyone should do this every five to 10 years, and certainly before a big, major life transition, such as retirement. You just want to make sure that you're on track. You don't have to hire someone to manage your money. You can just pay them by the hour or by the project to say, look at what I'm doing. Am I doing everything right? Am I on track? Is there something I'm missing? Um, Three places where you recommend you do that, of course, um, FullWealth.com. We have certified financial planners here at Motley Fool Wealth Management. A sister company of the Motley Fool. Thank you very much. And many of those planners have been on our show. There's also the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, NAPFA, and the Garrett Planning Network. Go to those websites, put in your zip code, 
and they'll tell you which planners are in your area. And then you just scroll through their descriptions of their services to see if they offer what you're looking for. So if you want money management, they'll say that in how and investment minimums. But if you just want someone by the project or by the hour, they'll say that too. Schedule two or three, interview them, and choose the one that you think is the best fit for you. In closing, we said a lot of these things would take five minutes, and a lot of them will. But maybe if you listen to this, you thought like, oh yeah, I should do that. I should do that. I should do that. And you add all five that. Five minutes adds up. Yeah. Right, exactly. So my final recommendation is also something we've talked about before, and that is taking a financial health day. It can be taking a day off work, just taking all day Saturday or Sunday. But if you sit down and just focus on knocking some of these things out, I think it would just take two, three, four hours at the most to accomplish an awful lot of this stuff. And your future self will definitely thank you. January is the time of year when we all snap out of our holiday reverie and assess the toll it took on our bodies. We're detoxing. We're pelotoning. We're, well, every year it's something new all over again. Becoming healthier is a good thing because we know health and wealth go hand in hand. Isn't that right, bro? Very true. Study after study shows it's true. Uh, But why is that, bro? Well, first of all, uh, being unhealthy is expensive. costs more in copays. It costs more in missing work. You're not as productive. Um, and wealthier people have the resources to do certain things that increase health. So you um, generally can afford better health care. You can generally afford better food. Lots of ways that they both sort of go back and forth and why healthier people are wealthier. But of course, not all health trends are created equally, and some can be pretty expensive. Do you want to guess how much the average American spends on just health and wellness, fitness sort of stuff a month? Uh, $200? Oh, you went high. So, $155 per month, uh, which is roughly about $112,000 over your entire lifetime. Oh, my goodness gracious. Yeah, no, that adds up, right? So, $112,000 spent on what? Well, the people over at Vice thought it'd be fun to poll readers on what were the worst wellness trends of the decade. And so, I'll warn you guys, the article does get a bit vulgar at times, but it was a fascinating roundup of the trends that captivated us over the last 10 years. So, they created a bracket of 64 different trends from kombucha to, quote, all the milks uh, and fidget spinners. At the time of the taping here, they are barely into the bracket. But I wanted to see if you guys agree or disagree so far, because they opened it up for their readers to vote. Okay. All right. A lot of these trends come from either Gwyneth Paltrow or Silicon Valley. So let's start with a first matchup of microdosing versus kale. So Silicon Valley brought us microdosing in the late twenty in late twenty fifteen. It's the act of taking very small amounts of LSD or some other psychedelic to promote creativity and productivity. But as Vice writes, microdosing is also just being high at work. So up against microdosing, we have kale. Thanks to Gwyneth Paltrow, who in two thousand eleven went on Ellen to share the good word on kale chips. So what do you think was a worse trend, microdosing or kale? I'm going to go with microdosing just because I know people who are big believers in kale. I don't know too many microdosers, at least that admit to me. What do you mean by worse? I don't know. I mean, define it for yourself. <laughs> um, I happen to like kale personally, and I have some good recipes that have taught me that kale can be good. So, uh, how about this? I, I hope I'm more more interested in my kids trying kale than than trying microdosing. LSD. <laughs> That's probably a good point. Yeah, I like kale fine. Yeah. Right. So. Vice readers, 60% said microdosing was worse than kale. All right. What was that percent? 
60%. So 40% would rather microdose or think microdosing is better? Yeah. Wow. Than kale. <laughs> All right. Next up, quinoa versus Fitbits. It only took quinoa thousands of years, but 2013 was declared the International Year of Quinoa. Oh, Rick's shaking his head. All right, quinoa up against Fitbit and our sudden urge to track every step we took for about a week before tossing the thing in a drawer never to be seen again. So what's worse, Fitbits or quinoa? My kids are loving Fitbits these days. I'm not sure why, but they're competitive with their cousins about it and stuff. So quinoa, it's just another grain. Who cares? It's an ancient grain packed with... I love quinoa. All grains are ancient. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's there's a new new one on the planet. Uh, so going with you or throwing the Fitbit in the drawer, I'm going to say that's worse because that makes me feel bad because it's a waste of money. Then so, at least the quinoa, at least you generally eat it. Quinoa is good. I'm going to have quinoa for lunch. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a, not a big fan, but I'd rather eat it than, rather, right, than well, eating a Fitbit. Vice readers. Uh, believe that Fitbits are worse, 58%. Quinoa came in at 42%. So, still kind of split. Yeah. All right, here's one that hurts me personally. Seltzer water versus the Peloton. We drink <laughs> so much spicy water, as Hannah used to call it. And it turns out that it actually kind of erodes the enamel of your teeth. It's something about carbon Ooh. dioxide and having a higher acidity close to, I don't know, science, science, science. But the, the <laughs> problem is, is we drink a lot of LaCroix in our house, and I thought I was being good. But you're not. Oh, apparently not. Well, all right. Fizzy water against Peloton, the bike that costs over $2,000, and then you got to pay 39 a month for classes. Company was founded in 2012 and achieved a, quote, vaguely culty bougie fitness level, yes. But it reached peak ridicule, of course, following their holiday ad. You'll remember the husband bought his wife the bike for a present. So, what's worse, Peloton or seltzer water? Well, if seltzer water really is bad for your teeth, and I think the Peloton is probably bad for your wallet, but as long as you're using it, it is good for your health. So, I would say the seltzer water is worse for your health, worse for your, better for your wealth. I don't know, something like that. Okay. I like seltzer water. I do too. I have a, I even have a soda stream. Yeah. Like, so yeah. Yeah. I'm all about the seltzer. All right. Well, vice readers decided, and this might be a little bit of your aforementioned recency bias here, that Peloton is worse. 72% said it's worse uh, fitness trend over seltzer water. So I'm going to keep drinking fizzy water. Mm-hmm. I just love mm-hmm. it. All right. Next up, and finally, CrossFit versus crystals. Yes. That's right. So, CrossFit. If someone you know got into CrossFit, you'd know it. The no-frills strength and conditioning workout might call to mind images of people in gyms doing burpees and flipping tires. And CrossFit is up against crystals. Yes, crystals. Did you know that they harness energy, which can be used to heal, to attract, and to manifest? Whatever that means. (laughs) So, all right. What do you think? What's the worst fitness and wellness trend, CrossFit or crystals? Crystals are worse. I'm a big believer in CrossFit. I was, it was a big part of how I lost like 30 pounds. There you, go. you lost 30 pounds? Yeah, I'm down. I'm still down about 25 pounds for my max weight. From all those burpees and all those CrossFit and Zumba. Course. The Zumba was a big help too. There you go. Crystals and all of that woo. <laughs> all of that woo. Uh, yep. So Vice readers would agree. 60% said crystals were the worst trend versus 40% who said CrossFit. So, because there are 64 trends in a bracket, in this bracket, um, there's a lot more voting to come and a lot other trends to reminisce about, like chia seeds, probably also ancient, activated charcoal, 
zoodles and bulletproof coffee. Remember when people were putting butter in their coffee and calling it bulletproof coffee? Yes, I remember so that. So stupid. All right. Well, I can't wait for the next 10 years of wellness <laughs> trends that are in store for us and all the money that we get to spend on it that's in the future. Right. That's right. All right. Well, that's the show. It's edited bulletproofingly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Send us your questions, your comments, your concerns. <laughs> for Robert Procamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.